current events, personal values, political and social issues, technology, wars, and tensions. Join us for the next hour to discuss and learn how the things happening in our world today point to God's prophetic word as signs of the times. Welcome to a special edition of Signs of the Times. I'm your host, Greg Hilt, and thanks for joining us. We have a different show today in focus and in length. Pastor Mark cannot be with us. However, as God orchestrates all things, Calvary Knoxville recently hosted longtime Israeli tour guide, Ronnie Simon. Ronnie has a vast knowledge of the history and politics of Israel and was with us to share his account of the October 7th massacre, along with sharing how Gaza even came to be what we see today. Ronnie is insightful, educational, and passionate about his homeland and brutally honest in his assessment of where the nation of Israel stands today, internally and in the eyes of the watching world. Ronnie has a bit of an accent and he'll tell you as much. So please listen closely as Ronnie Simon takes us behind the news headlines for a special look at Israel on this special edition of Signs of the Times. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for the opportunity uh, to be here tonight. I do have an accent, by the way, as some of you can tell already. Get used to it. It's not going to change for the next hour. I'll try to slow down to make my message as clear as possible. I'm surprised to see the turnout, and that warms my heart up because it means that people do care and people do want to know. And I know that some of my message will be preaching to the choir, but many people tell me we want to make a case for Israel. We want to stand with Israel when arguing with friends and families. We are missing some information. Well, my mission is basically to share some information with you, and that's not easy to do. The message you'll hear from me today is not an easy one to deliver and not an easy one to understand. It speaks about war. It speaks about bloodshed. It speaks about hostages. It speaks about something very personal to every Israeli. We are a small country. We're a small nation. And when something happens, everybody is involved. So we do speak about an unprecedented event that took place little over 100 days ago. We were still in a stage of a shock, so to speak, trying to digest how did it happen and how we are going to make sure it won't happen again. And for those of you that thought that this is a local conflict far away from home, you're wrong. It's a global conflict. It was always that way. But now you cannot hide it anymore. When the Houthis from Yemen, a thousand miles away, are firing at Israel, and closing the straits of Bab el-Mandeb and stop all the trade through the Suez Canal, and 17% of the world trade goes through the Suez Canal, 
prices will start rising, including in this country, because things come from China through the Suez Canal, even to America, we're all going to feel that. When Iran, a thousand miles away, is the mastermind behind everything, and the proxies all around the globe. And money from Qatar is the engine to fuel everything, and Qatar is the villain in the story. It's not a local issue. Another thing which is important to mention, because it's on the table, you cannot hide it anymore, it's a war of religion. For many, many years, we tried to ignore that, because once you speak about a religious war, it's a dead end. You cannot resolve anything, because it's not in the hands of the politicians. You cannot negotiate in behalf of your God. He did not authorize you to do so. And once you bring religion to the table, that's the end of peaceful arrangements, of politics. It was always about religion, but we refused to listen. So it's religion. It will be about religion. That's the nature of the conflict. An opinion, an opinion of mine. When historians are going to write down the history of the world in the first part of the 21st century, they will say the following. It was a war of religions. The trigger was 9-11. The first battle was defeating ISIS. The second battle was to defeat Hamas. Same agenda, same people, same mindset. I'm guiding in Israel for nearly 40 years. I had the privilege to guide many Americans in the country. And my opinion was always that there was no difference between the two, ISIS and Hamas. It's the same agenda. And people told me, but ISIS had proven already to be that cruel, Hamas not. The answer was, we are there to stop them. Well, Hamas had a 24 hours window to show the world what really they are like. And I think that we're all convinced that Hamas is of the same nature. By the way, they were the first. Hamas was founded in 1988. ISIS executed the plan of Hamas. So Hamas was the inspiration. It's Muslim Brotherhood, Palestine. And if you want to know more about the Muslim Brotherhood, I recommend that you go and read the book of the founder, Muhammad el-Bana, from 1934. It's Hitler's Mein Kampf in Arabic, almost one-to-one. -one. So we tried to hide that. We tried not to address that. Because if you know there is a problem that requires action, unfortunately, violent action, and we are sick and tired from another war and another one, but time is not in our favor. And therefore, for me to deliver such a message, it's easy to be very emotional about it. It's very personal to every one of us. I'll try to stay as objective as I can, but you do understand I cannot be totally objective. And there's so much biasness out there and this information that I don't want to add to that. If you do some cleanup, the nature of the problem is very simple. But since nobody wants to deal with simple issues because confusion is great, nobody knows what's going on. And sometimes that's the agenda. Let's add mountains of deception until nobody will have a clue what was going on. Well, some cleanup is necessary. I'm going to use the screens behind me, and I'm not a disciplined speaker, so you have three challenges this evening. Number one, get used to my accent. Number two, try to follow the screens over there and try to synchronize what I'm saying and the screen, which is not always together, okay? So if you need to choose one or the other, uh, focus on me. I know it's very kind of a humble thing to say, but uh, I'll stay on course sometimes. What happens behind me and in front of me is not well synchronized with the message. I'll go for about an hour, all right? We'll see how much we can dig into it. And then I'll be more than happy to answer questions if you have any. And every question is kosher. Can you say kosher in that regard? I'm not sure. It's legitimate. And I hope that you will be educated uh, this evening on new things. And that will help, even as a tool, to make a stand for Israel 
and to um, have uh, better information about what's going on. I want to start with the most painful issue, which is the hostages, and it's 109 days for the war, not 107. We are facing a situation that no nation had faced in the past. Nobody was uh, required or was demanded, if you wish, to face such a situation. We are fighting a war in the towers of Gaza that no army ever fought in the past. We are learning how to do that. The most painful issue is the hostages, and because of that, I chose to put it as number one, because there was a stated goal to the conflict, and Israel declared we want to destroy Hamas, but also free the hostages. It looks like these two objectives are contradicting one another. It would be very hard to accomplish both of them, and that's what uh, is the fault in Israel even today. What comes first? To rescue the hostages. Now you tell me, the baby that celebrated his first birthday, one year old, is a real enemy of Hamas and Islam. Women, children, elderly, civilians, 249 were kidnapped from their homes, those that were not butchered on the ground, and were not beheaded, and were not baked in ovens, I'm sorry for being gross, but these are the facts, were carried to Gaza. Some of them by simple Gaza, not even Hamas members. The fact that the walls were breached, 1,000 people came from Gaza, people who are not involved, innocent people with kitchen knives and scissors and axes to kill, kill, kill on the Israeli side. Who behaves like that? For years and years and years, we thought that we can reason because we are people and people have needs and we can sit at the table to find a solution. It's not working. It wasn't meant to work. We were deceived. And now when we know the nature of our friends on the other side, or neighbors on the other side, we'll have to take action. This has to end in one way only because the whole neighborhood is watching. Hamas will be destroyed. Maybe not the ideas of Hamas. Defeating Nazi Germany did not defeat Nazism. But we want to be in a situation that Hamas is not a government, and Hamas doesn't have any capabilities to do that again. If you talk to them, they say it loud and clear. We're going to do that again and again and again. I have to give Hamas credit. They don't hide their intention. It's out there. They speak it loud and clear in every language. We don't negotiate. We don't talk. We are going to kill all the Jews and Christians, by the way, something that you guys are ignoring all the time, but that's the agenda. I do not want to speak against Islam as a religion. I'm not a theologian. I don't have to. It's enough for me to see what Muslims are doing to other Muslims in behalf of their religion. For the last 15 years, what the media was calling the Arab Spring, how optimistic. The Arab Spring, sounds great, huh? More than a million Arabs were killed by Arabs in the Middle East during the Arab Spring. So don't tell me it's a religion of peace and love if that's how they behave and that's how they treat each other. Just imagine what they will do to non-Muslims. And we saw an example. An example in October 7th, and we had enough of that. So my plan is to try to give you the backstory, if possible, to try to focus on the key events, because to speak about Gaza today without knowing the past and the history, you're missing the whole backstory, and it is my plan today. I promise to try to be less biased as possible. Here is a picture that looks like the 4th of July, maybe, but it's not. What you see over there are rockets fired from Gaza on one side, and the Israeli Iron Dome is waiting patiently to intercept these rockets it's an amazing picture, huh? Wouldn't you agree? And it happened almost every night, not anymore today, because the rockets are running down by numbers, and we destroy many of them. 
But for a while, that was a daily issue. Every evening, a barrage of rockets came from Gaza. 92% of them were intercepted by the Iron Dome. So not that much damage was done. Here is the story of the Gaza Strip. A very small piece of property. It's only about 25 to 26 miles long, about 4 to 8 miles wide. 2.2 people, the most crowded place on the planet is indeed the Gaza Strip. You see how small it is, comparing the state of Israel, that's not big either. The whole of Israel is smaller than the great state of New Jersey, just to give it the right proportions. So Gaza covers a very small part of it, and that will be the map. I do want to show you the little timeline regarding the history of the Gaza Strip. Between 1949, we'll get into details in just a minute. Until 1967, it was in Egyptian hands. In the 1967 war, six-day war, we conquered Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, and we had it in our hands. In 1995, after negotiating with the Palestinians, we pulled out from the land, gave it to the Palestinians. In 2005, we pulled out from the rest of Gaza, and then Hamas took it over from the PLO. We'll go into some details in just a minute, but let's go to the very beginning. I'm taking you back now to 1947. 1947, 30 years of British mandate over Palestine came to an end. We speak about the years after the Second World War. Great Britain won the war but lost the empire. And they occupied Palestine. It was a mandate given to them by the League of Nations that preceded the United Nations. And after the war was over, Britain decided to leave the area. And they knew that if they are leaving Palestine, there will be a problem. Two people fought for the land, the Jews and the Arabs. And Great Britain was aware of the problem, and they knew that if they are leaving without trying to find some kind of a peace settlement, it will end with a bloodbath, which happened basically. And they asked the United Nations to come over and see what can be done. A team was sent over, nine members, and the plan was we are going to meet with Jewish leaders, we are going to meet with Arab leaders, we bring them to the table, we'll negotiate, we'll find a solution. The Jewish leaders more than eager to negotiate, these are the years after the Holocaust, Six million Jews perished in the Holocaust. Whatever the world would offer as a homeland for the Jews, we could not decline. The Arab leadership had a different opinion. This is Muslim territory. The Jews have no rights in it. We are not negotiating. Once Great Britain is leaving, we are going to throw the Jews into the ocean period. So even if we wanted to try to find a settlement that wasn't realistic, and this delegation, very frustrated, decided that the only way to end this place or this conflict peacefully is to divide the land into two. It's going to be divided to a Jewish homeland, to an Arab slash Palestinian homeland. I'll hesitate to use the term Palestinian because they were not born yet as a nation. I know it sounds amazing because you all thought that there was always an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You're wrong. Before 1988, 1988, not even the Arab countries believed there is a nation called Palestine, let alone they deserve a land. This is a new conflict, okay? But very clever propaganda was able to place that issue as a central, pivotal issue to world peace, etc. Nonsense. But that's what people think about today. There was always a Palestinian people, always a place called Palestine. There was no such entity, and there isn't such an entity. There is no place called Palestine. It's a sentiment. There's no passport, and no country, and no government. There is no such place, okay? Just to be practical. Well, who am I to tell five million people that believe they're a nation, you're not a nation? It's not really helping the cause. But practically, you won't see a Palestinian passport. 
There are no Palestinian passports. There's no currency. There's no history. All right? But this is not the point for tonight. So the delegation was asking the General Assembly to vote for the plan. And on the 29th of November, 1947, the world had voted for the resolution that will be called Resolution 181, the partition plan. The land called Palestine, and when people chanting and screaming from the river to the sea, not having a clue what river they're talking about, where we speak about the River Jordan on one side, Mediterranean Sea, that will be divided to two national entities, one for the Jews, one for the Arabs. Jerusalem will be an international city, an enclave of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and not part of any of the two countries. That was the plan. The UN voted for it. It's passed, and hallelujah, problem over two countries for two people. If I'd ask you how many countries were actually born after this resolution, you will tell me that only one, the state of Israel. How come there is no Palestine? The UN said very clearly, it would be two countries for two people. The Palestinian state was never born. And if you don't know your history, and that's why I'm here, the answer will be the Palestinian state was not born because you, the Jews, conquered the land. And for that reason, there is no Palestine. You're wrong. Let me show you what happened. Well, that was the plan originally, the partition plan. That's how it looked like. Since the Palestinians refused to take it, when Britain left the area and the Arab armies invaded Israel, we were very fortunate and successful to conquer more land that was allocated to the Palestinians. If you start the war and you lose some territory, don't complain. And after the war was over, these are now the borders of the state of Israel. This will be Palestinian territory, and this will be Palestinian territory, but it wasn't. Because when the war started, the king of Jordan was sending his army to help the Palestinians, his brothers. And after the war was over, he decided to leave his army in the area and not to give it over to the Palestinians. So the area called the West Bank, the West Bank of the Jordan, it's a geographical term. Let's use the biblical name, Judea and Samaria. The biblical heart of Israel is indeed the West Bank. This place was supposed to be part of the Palestinian state. The king of Jordan decided to stay because it was lush land, it was beautiful, and simply annex it to Jordan. The Egyptians that were supposed to come and help the Palestinians from the Gaza, from the Sinai Peninsula, simply decided to keep the Gaza Strip under their custody. It was not annexed to Egypt officially, but these territories were supposed to be Palestinian state. And therefore, Palestine was not born, not because of Israel. Most of the land that was allocated to them by the UN was in the hands of Jordan, the hands of Egypt, the Jordanians, and the Egyptians refused to withdraw. They kept the land, and that's the reason why there is no Palestine until this very day. So there's a new map now in the region, in the area. That will be the state of Israel. That will be part of Jordan. That will be part of Egypt. So the Gaza Strip was created, basically, by the armistice after Israel defeated the Egyptian army and conquered all this area from the Egyptians in 1948-49. What was left in their hands will be known later on as the Gaza Strip. There was no Gaza Strip before 1949. Well, the city of Gaza, the southern coast of the land of Canaan, to use the biblical term, the Gaza Strip was created basically as a result of the ceasefire, the armistice between Israel and between Egypt. That would be the situation. The population in the Gaza area were predominantly refugees. People who fled during the war of 1948 from the area of Jaffa and Lida and Ramleh. 
By the way, Israel is accused for this refugee problem. Let me tell you what, and please check me out. By the way, don't believe to anything I'm saying. I have an agenda. I cannot be trusted. You go and check. If you find better facts, I'm open for a debate. But you won't. When the war started, the Arab leaders made an announcement. You Arabs of Palestine may be caught in the line of fire because we are coming with the mighty armies to throw the Jews into the ocean. Come and take shelter in our country just for the time being. And after we deal with the Jews, you go back to their homes and you take their homes much nicer than yours. 85% of people that were called refugees until this very day left the homes before the war even started, invited by the leaders of the Arab countries. Well, they lost the war and they're not coming back. But many of them went down to Gaza. 80% of the population of Gaza today are refugees. By the way, the title refugee is very interesting because there is a lot of international agreements who will be called a refugee. Only the first generation of refugees is recognized to be as refugee. In the case of the Palestinians, the UN made a special arrangement. UNRWA was founded in 1949. In the case of the Palestinians, you can inherit your position to the fifth generation, just in the case of the Palestinians. So why do you want to solve the problem? You're making more money on the list of UNRWA for welfare than you're making working in Gaza. Why even work? So you're not really helping. UNRWA was supposed to rehabilitate refugees. Not even one was rehabilitated. And UNRWA officials are Hamas members, basically. You hear some bitterness in my voice because the world ignored at the same time that these refugees went down to Gaza, about 700,000 Jews had to leave their homes in Iraq and Egypt and Syria and Lebanon, and they lived there from the days of Nehemiah, long before Saddam Hussein. Guess what? They had to leave the homes because when the rumors came from the battlefield that the Jewish army is prevailing, their lives were in danger. They are refugees as well, just like the others. Did you ever hear the term Jewish refugee ever? I don't think so. All right, so speaking about fairness and speaking about double standard. So now we have the Gaza Strip and we have it full of population, mostly refugees. So until 1967, I'm sorry, that's what you need to see. Until 1967, it was indeed in the hands of the Egyptians. If you were a Palestinian now who lived in Egypt, in the Gaza Strip, you had no rights whatsoever, no citizenship. You can hardly find a job. You can hardly get an education. The one thing the Egyptians did is to build all kinds of militias, the Fadayun, to carry the struggle against Israel. And I'm saying that because the world accuses us for apartheid, which is absolutely nonsense. Let me show you apartheid. A Palestinian who lives in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Kuwait, he doesn't have an official citizenship. He's treated like a dog. Zero rights. That's apartheid. The only country that was accommodating them to make them civilians was Jordan. So 70% of Jordanians today are basically Palestinians. If you are an Arab who lives in Israel, you're an Israeli. You can be a member of the Knesset, the parliament, you're voting, you can be elected, every position is open to you. In the Supreme Judges that we had, some of them in the Supreme Court are Arab judges, the winner of what would be the American one, American Idol, the equivalent in Israel, was an Arab. We even have a lot of cooking programs, huh? Isn't that popular? 
Sometimes the winners are Arab cooks. Apartheid? You must be kidding. People that don't have a clue will point the finger to say that Israel is an apartheid state. The one thing that the Arabs are not required to do in Israel is serve in the army. All that you go, we go to serve in the army. The Arabs can volunteer, but they don't have to. They have their property protected, their civil rights protected, and they call us an apartheid state. You want to see apartheid, go to Lebanon, go to Iraq, go to Kuwait, go to Syria, go to Egypt, you'll find apartheid. But nobody cares about that, huh? It's just Israel, the one which is being measured by a different standard to speak about an apartheid state. Some data. Lifespan in the Gaza Strip until 1967, 48 years. Today, 78. We built the clinics. We built the hospitals. We brought them life. Infant mortality, 55 to 100,000, down to six today. And we are accused to be the apartheid nation and the apartheid state. Go and check the figures. It's out there. It's not Israeli figures. It's a UN international research organizations. So these are the facts. And as I said, don't believe me. You can't be, I cannot be trusted. You go and you check on your own. So now when Israel took the Gaza Strip from the Egyptians, it was in our hands for a few years. In the midst of that, we started negotiating with the Palestinians over a potential arrangement. Oslo Accord, some of you may have heard about that in 1993. Itzhak Rabin was prime minister, Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, and we thought that it's about time for reason and logic to prevail, and we're going to leave behind all the hatreds. We'll try to work for peace. It looked like it's impossible, but I do want to make a distinction important for you to understand. The PLO is an organization which is based on the nationalism, the Palestine Liberation Organization. They do not have a religious agenda. And therefore, that was common ground. We are not going to negotiate religion. We're going to try to find something reasonable for the best of two people. Let's stop the killing. It will have to work. What we did not understand back at the time, that the PLO was not representing all the Palestinians. We thought that when you get a deal with Arafat, all the Palestinians are included. Hamas was founded in 1988, and they said, we are not part of the PLO. And therefore, we are not under any obligation to keep anything that the PLO signed in our behalf. Now we know the nuances. Back in 1993, we did not. So we made a deal with the Palestinians, and the deal was that we are going to pull out from territories in the West Bank and Gaza, give it over to the Palestinians, they will build their Palestinian autonomy that was built in July 1st of 1994. And we are going to look at you very carefully to see how you deliver. Here is a piece of land. You show us that you can govern it successfully. You show us that you are collecting all the illegal weapons and you educate your kids in a peaceful way and not on hatred, which is the main key, by the way. How do you educate the next generation? So we left most of the Gaza Strip and you do see those enclaves that were left, which Israel kept. But most of the Gaza Strip is now in Palestinian hands. That's Gaza City, that's Khan Yunus, and that's Rafah, the three big cities in the Gaza area. Guess what we got in return? Well, definitely not peace. Since we're out of part of Gaza, that became to be a haven to all those terrorists because Mr. Arafat had no intention to work for a two-state solution. It was an opportunity. They call it the salami plan, if you wish, slice by slice. And before not too long, we started 
hidden by rockets that were made by the locals and bombs, and a few communities that were still in the Gaza area suffered terrible casualties. Back in the days, if a kid wanted to go and visit his friend in the next community, the family car had to be escorted by helicopter gunship. Otherwise, you're not leaving the safety of your community. And since we said this is not going to work, we need to find another plan. So between 1967 and 1994, I just covered almost all of it, so if you would like to read it, please, and if not, that's fine as well. But for a short time, it looks like it's going to work. We've built a brand new airport for the Palestinians in Gaza. There was a harbor, holiday villages, hotels, beautiful beaches. It looked like it's going to work. It didn't. Because when terror started, we just said, what's going on? We made a deal. You're enjoying prosperity for the first time ever. You have a chance to be a real nation. Why do you do that? Well, the answer was, of course, I'm not controlling my own people. That was Arafat. That is the motivation. That's the agenda. They simply fooled us, and more than once. So when we understood this is not going to work, we initiated something else, and that will be what was called the disengagement. Some of you may remember the name Ariel Sharon, and I'm skipping that. Ariel Sharon was prime minister in Israel, very hardliner. By the way, the first time that a rocket was flying into Israel was in 2001, the town of Zdeot that was rocketed by thousands of rockets. A whole generation of Israelis is growing in bomb shelters. Now listen, we are much stronger. We can take Gaza out in a very short time if we don't care about civilians. It was always the way that democracies are fighting war in a certain way. Innocent civilians should not be in the line of fire. Today what happens is that the gloves are off and everybody is a terrorist. So things are a little different today. But back then we still thought it has a chance. So you get one rocket and another one. You go to the town of Zdeot, beautiful town. Every hundred yards there is a little concrete cube which is a bomb shelter. You go to your daily business and suddenly the siren sounds off and you have to run for your life. And when they start rocketing, usually at 7.45 every morning, what happens at 7.45? Come on, you know the answer. Kids go to school, right? And those kids have eight seconds, eight seconds to find a shelter or to lie flat on the ground. It happens for the last more than 20 years. Nobody should live like that. We did. And we did not nuke Gaza. We thought there was a chance, and not everybody is a bad person, and we find the right leadership. We really want to be integrated into the Middle East, accepted by the Arab countries, and working with the Palestinians will be like a precondition to be accepted into the Middle East and be part of the Middle East. Not working. 2005, Ariel Sharon decided to initiate what will be called the disengagement plan. Israel is putting out of Gaza. 2002, President Bush delivered a message in the 22nd of June, and he said in his message that it was always America's vision to see a two-state solution. Well, it wasn't, until President Bush said it so clearly, which is fine, because the plan had a second part that said, in order for that to happen, the Palestinians have to surrender their weapons and have to stop the terror, and since we knew it's not going to happen, we said, okay, we are going to go with the roadmap for peace. And that's the plan on the table, the two-state solution, basically. So Israel decided to show the world that it's not enough to appease the Palestinians. It's not enough to pull out from territory. That's not their real intent. Protecting our civilians in the Gaza area was simply impossible. Every community was protected by a brigade. 
Israel is not such a large army. How many brigades can you dedicate just to protect civilians? And therefore, the disengagement was a plan that Israel will pull out from Gaza. It came to conclusion in September 11th of 2005, there are no Israelis, not even one, in the Gaza Strip. So when you see people marching with those stupid signs, free Gaza, free Gaza from whom? Maybe from Hamas. There are no Israelis in Gaza since 2005, not even one. We left behind greenhouses and drip irrigations and communities and synagogues. All of them were destroyed. You idiots, you need to eat. Use those facilities. Oh no, the Jews build it, we're not going to use that. 70% of unemployment in Gaza, when the world is pouring money in for them to build an economy, they come to work in Israel. We feed them. And those people that came to be fed by us are those that betrayed us and led the attack on October 7th of 2023. Same people. They knew how the communities looked like. They knew the people. They had pictures in their hands. They knew exactly where to go, to what house to fire an RPG. And they did that while they came to work and feed the families spying on these communities. So now we have a new situation. Israel is not in Gaza anymore. And by the way, Gaza borders also with Egypt. If there was a problem, let the Egyptian feed them. Why do we? You give me one example of one place around the world. The two people are at a war, and one is supplying the other with food and pharmaceuticals and fuel, where the other was determined to destroy you. Who does that? Or oh, we do. We try to distinguish terrorists from innocent people, other innocent people in Gaza. I believe they are. I just don't know who these people are. They don't speak up. And therefore, the 2005 disengagement changed everything because we understood that we have a major problem. And problem is we are going to screen everything that goes into Gaza. We are going to check that what goes in goes in just for people. But once you cross the borderline, who seizes all that material? What do you think? Well, Hamas does. By the way, we decided to send in cement because people need to build homes. Where did the cement end? building tunnels in Gaza. Though the single house was built, everything was used to build tunnels, 500 miles of tunnels. There is no such place on the planet and never was. So 2005 and on was a turning point. And from 2005, we are out, but Hamas is not in yet. They're going to come in full power by brutally murdering their brothers and sisters. Elections. Since everything was part of a political procedure, and the U.S. was deeply involved, it was an opportunity to show the world that Arabs can live in a democracy as well. By the way, there was not a single Arab democracy. All right? There was one called Lebanon, which is in total chaos now because of the democracy. And I'm not criticizing, not everybody can live in democracy. It was an opportunity. Ms. Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State back at the time, was all behind the process. Observers came to watch and to see that it's a legitimate procedure and people are running and there are no kind of tricks, etc. And we just made a suggestion, if you let Hamas run, they will win the elections. It won't be a democracy. And Ms. Rice said, well, it's a democracy, and that's what America is supporting. It will be free elections. Guess who won the elections? Now, if you win the election, 75% Hamas. People that voted for Hamas knew exactly what they're voting for. The agenda is there. I urge you to Google Hamas Charter, November 1988. It's all there. No secrets. If you vote for that, don't be surprised that that's what you're getting. So Hamas won the elections, but the PLO that was still in power refused to relinquish their weapons, which led to a civil war. 
So Gaza experienced a short time of a civil war. Hamas won big time. And the PLO was not only defeated, they lost a lot of people. By the way, the way to get rid of PLO officials by Hamas is to take them to the top floor in the high rises in Gaza that we leveled recently and just push them down to their death. And it happened by the hundreds. The hundreds of people, even today, pushed by wheelchairs because they had a bullet in the kneecap. That's how they treat one another, the Palestinians. So now the Palestinian people are divided into two. Hamas is controlling Gaza. The PLO is controlling the West Bank. These two don't like each other. We cannot speak about one Palestinian nation. They are divided politically and religiously. That will be a given situation, and that's where we are right now. Let's have a word about Hamas, so we'll get to know this group of people a little better. So from 2007, it's indeed Hamas that rules the Gaza Strip. We speak about a militia which is motivated by religion. They don't have a national agenda. They aspire to found or to build a caliphate, just like ISIS did, which means that idea is that if you divide the Arab people, or the Muslims, I'm sorry, to nations and states, you are defeating the purpose of Islam. A division to national countries is weakening the Muslim cause. All the Arab Muslims should stick together to create a caliphate. By the way, when the head of Islam is from an Arab descent, his title is a caliph. When he's not Arab, he's a sultan. Let me clarify something which will confuse you, but everything confuses anyhow. There are 1.4 billion Muslims in the world. Most of the Muslims are not Arabs. Countries like Indonesia and Malaysia and half of Nigeria and Iran and Turkey, all these are Muslim countries, but they are not Arabs. An Arab is not a religion, it's not an ethnicity, it's not a nationality, it's a lifestyle, it's a language, it's a culture, it's a civilization. And not all the Arabs are Muslims. They are Christian Arabs as well. Just in Egypt, about 20 million people are Christian Arabs. I know it's confusing, but these, these facts are important to know. And therefore, we speak about the Arab-Muslim aspiration to build a caliphate, and therefore you don't speak about nationalities, you speak about one entity that all the Muslims are fighting under, Sunnis, not Shiites. So if you're not confused so far, that will confuse you as well. Sunnis and Shiites are not friends. They only come together on one thing, the hatred to Israel. So the Muslim area or the Muslim world is also quite divided. Now, we don't care. Being selfish in that regard, I know what happens on our borders, and the end result will be the same. Let's read a couple of paragraphs from the Charter of Hamas. Article 13, you can read that. Come to the conclusion. So what's the point in negotiating and try to find an agreement, there's only one way to end the issue. Jihad means basically to kill all the infidels, and that's you and me, all right? So there's no room for any kind of negotiations. By the way, for years, that was the mindset, and the second part was, send us food, please, because we are starving to death. And we did, and we did. Let me read your year for yourself, uh, Article 28, the letters in red, and you tell me what do you make out of it. Interesting, huh? They will not forget when the Jewish soldiers stood in the blessed Dome of the Rock and they cried out, Muhammad is dead, he left daughters behind. 
I don't remember that I ever cried it out that we left daughter here. What nonsense. But that's what Hamas charter is all about. And that's what we are facing, basically. These guys are merciless, and they will not hesitate to lead the people to suffer. The way they see the struggle is that their civilians are protecting them. They are not protecting their civilians. The civilians are the first line of defense to protect Hamas. The assets, the bunkers, their arsenals, they are using the people as human shields and say it loud and clear. A Hamas official was asked about two months ago, how come you do not prepare tunnels for the population? Why just Hamas terrorists are going to hide in the tunnels? The answer was the population of refugees, the UN should take care about them. We don't care about the population. How do you fight that? When Hamas is willing and interested to sacrifice as many Palestinians as possible, you don't have that much leverage to fight against such a group. So that Palestinians is good for Hamas. That Israelis, excellent for Hamas. That Palestinians is bad for Israel. That Israelis, very bad for Israel. You don't understand the equation here, but that's where we are standing right now. That's how they operate, and they won't hesitate to rocket even a crossing through which food is being sent in. Because when Gaza is hungry, it's excellent for Hamas. They can always accuse the brutality of the Jewish state for that. So Hamas doesn't care much about what happens in Gaza, and what you see in the last three months will be the proof of that. Here are some of the famous characters. Uh, the head of the PLO, the president, uh, Mahmoud Abbas Abu Mazen, who is totally out of control. The world wants us to negotiate with him, but he cannot deliver anything. 87 years old, not in control, but he is the moderate one. The man denied the Holocaust more than once, but he is the good guy that we're supposed to talk to. The others, Hamas, are not talking to anybody, and they're not interested in discussions. It's all about jihad. Hamas is operating not just in the Gaza Strip. They have big strongholds in the West Bank as well, all around the world. It's a proxy of Iran. Orders are taken from Tehran, and they're operating not just in the West Bank and Gaza, but other places as well. After Hamas gained the Gaza Strip, Israel decided to have a blockade on the Gaza Strip. You want to feed them, we ask the Egyptians, you feed them, they are your brothers. We have no such obligation. Because the people say that Gaza is like a big ghetto. There's no access. No, you're wrong. There is a border of Gaza and Egypt. I don't remember anybody puts pressure on the Egyptians to supply food into Gaza. Just Israel. And we do. And we do. So everything comes to our harbors, Harbor of Ashdod. We screen everything and we send it in. And to prove to the world that there's nothing missing in Gaza, we ask Egyptian journalists to come and visit the Gaza Strip, and you read the reports over there. Again, I didn't make up any of it. The Egyptian journalists were shocked to see how easy life is in Gaza compared to Egypt. All right, so starvation, and people are miserable, nonsense. This is not me saying that. That's an Egyptian reporter that came to view things in Gaza. We were surprised to see that life in Egypt is much harder than it is in the Gaza Strip. So this blockade that we have, you have the right to do that, by the way, by international law. We only let in what's necessary for food over there. By the way, you do know that if you're a farmer and you're using all kinds of chemicals, it's easy to make a bomb out of it. But you need them as fertilizers. So how do you find that? If a farmer in Gaza needs potassium and needs magnesium, that's how we fertilize the land. But these two chemicals plus some others will make a great bomb as well. 
So are you going to let it in? Or are you going to forbid that? You understand our dilemma. So Gaza was not starving to death. The Gaza did quite well, which always convinced us. Life is not that bad. They have a lot to lose. If they do launch such an attack, they're going to lose all of that. How little we knew, now we know. All the money that was sent by the world into Gaza was used to build tunnels, and most of it came in secretly. I mentioned Qatar earlier. Qatar is the one that finances everything. So Qatar is sending to Gaza $30 million every month, which is the legitimate one to pay Hamas officials in Gaza $100 for a family for a month. You don't do much with $100 in America for a month, right? Well, in Gaza you do. But the big money was coming in secretly, and the big money was the one that financed all those tunnels. And I'm telling you, 500 miles of tunnels, we thought about 200, now we are in there. And we are shocked to see the amount of weapons and the amount of ammunition and the amount of bombs and the tunnels. And these are not locally made. We speak about standard weapons. How did they get into the Gaza Strip when we have the blockade on Gaza? Well, through tunnels that come from Egypt. Egypt refused or did not fulfill its obligation. We pulled out from the Gaza Strip. The Egyptians were supposed to flood all the tunnels from Egypt into the Gaza area. They did not. And Hamas kept digging tunnels. So everything in Gaza is not locally made. It's coming from Libya. It's coming from Iran, from North Korea. And every day in the news, Israeli soldiers are exposing and are finding another bunker and another workshop. It's amazing. A countless number of weapons and rifles. 80% of the houses have piers that go down to the tunnel or the metro, as we call it. We knew that something happens, but we had no idea of the scale of things as it's revealed now. So we speak about tunnels and we speak about rockets, etc. Let me say a word about the Israeli policy. I'll be careful here with your permission. I do know that Mr. Netanyahu is quite popular in the US of A. Um, I won't say much about his popularity. I'll say the following. He's holding office for 16 years now. And once you hold office, you're responsible, all right? And he had the idea regarding how to handle the issues vis-a-vis Hamas. Until then, the idea was that if Israel wants to make peace with the Arab world around us, we have to resolve the problems with Hamas. And then all the others will join in. Hamas will be the tough nut right, to crack, but once you make a deal with them, that will draw to the table all the others. You have to resolve the issue with Hamas first. Mr. Netanyahu said, not so. We are going to try to work with the Arab countries like the Abraham Accords, which was a great success, by the way. The Emirates and all the Arab friends of ours and Saudi Arabia, very close to kind of a peace treaty or normalization. That was his idea. We're not going to speak to the Palestinians. We're going to try to normalize the situation with the Arab countries. And then they will press the Palestinians so hard that the Palestinians will have to capitulate. They'll have to compromise. It will be easier to deal with them with all the pressure of the rest of the Arab world. It's a legitimate policy. Problem was, it wasn't working. Because it can only work under one condition. You need to keep the Palestinians separated. Which is, if you want to undermine the position of the PLO, you have to support Hamas. We supported Hamas. Not officially, God forbid. Everything happened under the table. But the policy of Israeli government was that you want a strong Hamas and not a strong PLO. Israeli cabinet ministers were saying that Hamas is an asset and the PLO is a liability. 
and to make sure that they function, we opened our borders. We took 18,000 workers from Gaza every day to work in Israel. And we thought that they're going to build an economy. They will have something to lose. So why attack Israel? Knowing that if you do, you're going to lose everything. That's how logical people think. But this is not about logical thinking. So that would be the idea. And that would be the policy. And since we knew that Hamas is digging tunnels under the borderline into Israel, we decided to build a fence. And the fence was supposed to be the ultimate solution to the problem. It was full of electronics, and it goes about 70 feet underground. Impossible to dig a tunnel under because the water table is very high in the Gaza area. It will be flooded. The fence will solve all of our problems. Hallelujah. Uh, no, it didn't. It didn't, and it didn't because of a reason that we've learned a lesson. I'll share that with you in just a minute. It wasn't just the fence. It was a whole buffer zone, about 100 meters, or 300 feet or so wide that nobody was supposed to cross to come closer to the fence. And we have our defense system over there, and radars, and sensors, and everything was ready. It wasn't working. As I said earlier, everything was coming into the Gaza from tunnels from Egypt. And we did not know about that. We thought that the fence is going to be the ultimate protector of the country. Well, it wasn't. Think about people that live in communities along the Gaza Strip. The country promised them, you're safe. It's okay. No way that anybody can cross from the other side. And if anybody does, we are here to protect you. That was the whole idea. Think about a generation that lives a daily life that every single minute the siren can go off and you have to run to the bomb shelter. Nobody should live like that. And it's amazing what you can get used to. There are children in my country that that's the daily life. So since this was not working, and again, we are build the fences, here is what happened. And let me just skip this one to show you the one down below. Let's say that you have this buffer zone that nobody's supposed to cross, and you're watching carefully nobody is indeed crossing. Forget about the screen over there. And one day you see a kid plays with a little football and just kicks the ball into the buffer zone area and goes inside to pick up the ball. What will you do? Are you going to shoot him? I'm asking you. Not really, just a little kid. Following day, a farmer shows up, a shepherd. He's walking with the sheep, and some of the sheep are going astray into the buffer zone. He goes in to clear the area. Are you going to shoot the sheep or the shepherd? Nah, not really. And before not too long, we have thousands of Palestinians rolling burnt tires against the fence, creating this big smoke screen over there. Just peaceful demonstration, huh? Look how peaceful that is. And inside this smoke, people are crawling to the fences, attached the bombs to the fences. Everything was ready for the attack. I can tell you that when this will be over, and once again, there will be a buffer zone. If a tiny baby is crawling across this line, we'll kill him. We've learned a lesson. I'm sorry, it doesn't sound pleasant. Because we'll have to create something after this war is over, and that something will be similar. But now we won't be that merciful and won't be that compassionate. So small steps, one after the other, until you get those smokes right on the border. You cannot see anything. The detectors are not working. The smoke detectors are not working. They were very, very successful to deceive us, and they did a great job in doing that. And they did that because they knew Israel doesn't kill innocent civilians. I'm afraid that maybe we'll have to next if that is going to repeat itself. 
And then, of course, the big day arrived, so to speak. I was walking the dog, 6.30 a.m. My phone rings. My daughter is working for the Israel News Media. And he never, she never calls me at 6.30. Nobody calls me at 6.30 in the morning in a holiday. And she said, Dad, where are you? Walking the dog. Well, go back home as quickly as you can. A barrage of 2,000 rockets is coming your way. Uh, we are used to rockets. It's not new to Israel. We're not used to people infiltrating, invading, breaking through the fences and go into communities, murdering people in their beds. Men and women and children were beheaded. What kind of a monstrous mind will cook a baby in an oven, huh? You tell me. And they were stupid enough to film everything. Because the story is, oh, Israel just invented, never happened. It's just a Jewish story. Well, they filmed everything. And they were very happy to do that. Some of you may remember the phone call that was intercepted. A Palestinian Hamas terrorist is taking a phone from a woman he just murdered, calls his father in Gaza. Dad, I killed eight Jews with my very hands. Your son is a hero. And the father is in tears. Keep killing my son. I wish I could be with you. Who speaks like that? We are dealing with monsters. It took us a while to understand that. And let me say once again, if you think that this agenda is limited to the Middle East, you're wrong. The agenda doesn't have any borders, okay? So, October 7th of 2023, holiday, we speak about Sukkot, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and everybody's home. There was a music festival about 10 miles away from the line. I heard the other day a French philosopher gave an interview, and he had a very interesting view. Well, that music festival, they played really loud music, People were dancing, that was to the border. It's a provocation. It's a provocation. These people in Gaza are so poor, and you really want to press them by playing music on the borders? What an idiot. But that's the response that you hear from people around the world. People that go to play music and dance, it's a provocation to the spirit of Islam. In a very short time, they're able to breach the wall in 22 different locations. They're well trained for that. They went into our communities, some army bases, and the killing started. In my country, every house is a bomb shelter. And if the house is a high riser and there's no time to go to the bomb shelter, every apartment has one room made of fortified concrete. That's the family's shelter. These shelters are protecting you against rockets, not against somebody in the house because you can open it from inside. So the problem was to try to keep the handle so nobody will open that door. And people did it for hours just to hold the handle so nobody can open the door from the outside because the concrete protects you from bullets. You cannot fire an RPG inside the house. And some succeeded, some not. We lost a 1,000 civilians that day within hours, a colossal failure of our side. The army wasn't there. The government wasn't there. It will be investigated. I wish I could be a fly on the walls of the army headquarters just to listen to that. I'm too old for that now. If they call me now, we are in trouble. But you do understand, something was dead wrong. On every single level, nothing worked for 24 hours. And then we recovered, and then we moved in, and we are determined to make sure that Hamas will no more exist after this war is over. And this is not an easy warfare because we are fighting a war that no army has the experience how to do that. 
armies will come to learn from Israel how to do that, because this may be uh, the new warfare. Not the Russians in the Ukraine, and not the U.S. in Mosul. The U.S. just provided air support. The battle on the ground was done by proxies of Iran. Yes, America cooperated with Iran in order to destroy ISIS in the city of Mosul. It's a new thing. It's a new thing, and we're learning how to do that. So the music festival, about 400 people were simply murdered. They did not know that the festival goes on. It was just a bad luck in a way. When the rescuers came, they saw a big fire from a distance. They came close and they did not understand what's burning. And they came a little closer. They piled up more than 150 bodies and set them on fire. Just imagine to try to separate them to know who was in this fire. Who are the people who are dead? Everybody had a name and a family. You need to extract some DNA. You can't do that after a while. So even today, we have some people who are missing. We just don't know what happened. When you see rescue workers using the equipment of archaeologists, you know that something is bad. Because the archaeologists, when they dig something, they use big sifts, and they're sifting everything. What stays on top can be pieces of pottery, if it's archaeology. Maybe some coins, in this case, a part of a tooth, a part of a bone, just to try to identify the people that were simply burned to death. It happened in homes in these communities. And to make it more tragic, the people that lived in these communities by the Gaza Strip were the people that did believe in coexistence. They were helping the people in Gaza, which they knew in person sometimes. There was a couple, 85 years old, that used to drive to the border crossing because Israel provides medical care for Gazans who need it for free. They used to bust them and take them in their cars to the hospital and back to Gaza. They were the first victims. And the person that kidnapped them knew exactly who they were. He knew the house. Who behaves like that? Look at that. You see the cars on both sides of the road, right? That's what was left from this music festival. Miles and miles of cars. Many of them were totally set on fire. Look at this pile of stuff. Teams went in later on just to try to retrieve whatever was found in the car to try to identify the people. And you took some hitchhikers, anybody into the car, you don't even know who went where. It was impossible to find out. Let me show you a short video, and there's not really audio, but I was in this kibbutz about a week after it happened. Kibbutz Be'eri, the one that took maybe the hardest hit. Come on. Some images from kibbutz Be'eri. The there kibbutz is audio. that was hit the hardest from the murderous attack of Hamas. Until two weeks ago, happy families used to live here. This was a house with children playing out on the green grass. It was beautiful, it was a little paradise, and that's what was left of it now. It's not pleasant to see, and you see that in too many communities close to the Gaza Strip. We spoke about the hostages. This is one of the main tragedies that we are facing, and you do understand that the two objectives of the war as Israeli government basically laid them down to the army, to the people, is to rescue the hostages and destroy Hamas. Unfortunately, these two contradict each other. It will be very hard all right, to finish up Hamas and believe that we can rescue all these hostages. We do know for a fact that 25 of them are killed already. We have no idea where they keep them. But you do understand that when we are attacking a certain target, one thing we consider may be the hostages in that tunnel. So that makes everything a lot harder for us to plan to operate. And they are playing a brutal game, Hamas. It's a psychological terror. 
about two weeks ago, they showed a short video clip with three people, all alive, talked to the camera, and the headline was, this video was made a week ago. We'll show you tomorrow the condition of these three. And they did release a video the following day, two dead bodies in the corners of the room, and the girl is still standing. And it will happen again, unfortunately. So this will be the main dilemma that we have regarding the next operation in Gaza. So once again, the picture of the enemies of Islam, people that were kidnapped by Hamas terrorists into Gaza. Some were released, some are back with us. This is Kfir Bibas. He celebrated his one birthday, the first birthday a week ago, someplace in the Gaza area, nobody knows where. You would assume that the Red Cross will go maybe to check, huh? You must be kidding. The Red Cross doesn't care. But they reminded us that we should treat the prisoners of Hamas in our prisons by the Geneva Convention. Very important to remind us. They're prisoners in our prisons. They can order food from restaurants, visited by doctors, lawyers, family, and they can have academic education. Yes, we have zero information about our prisoners which are held in the hands of Hamas. I do want to add something with your permission. Give me five more minutes. We'll bring that to conclusion. And for that reason, I do want to convince you that although most of the attention goes to Gaza, but it's not the only front that we are confronting. That's how parts of Gaza look now today. We are engaged simultaneously with some other battles in the area, which are on a different level of intensity. Number one, Lebanon. In Lebanon, there was a war going on ever since the war with Hamas started every day. Israelis are not maneuvering. The army is not moving in. It's simply firing at each other. We evacuated 70,000 Israelis from the towns along the border not to get hit. All the livestock was lost. Most of the uh, orchards, nobody picks the fruits on the trees. And keep in mind, some of you have been to Israel. We have some good fruits and vegetables, okay? Israel is number three in the world, three in the world in absolute numbers, not per capita, in fruits and vegetables. And that comes from a desert country. All right? We speak about a lot of hard work of people to make the country that used to be covered by swamps and marshes into a small paradise. And right now, not all of it can be really cultivated. So Lebanon will be one of the immediate issues, and I'm sorry to tell you, this will not end peacefully. Just like Hamas had their commander forces, so does Hezbollah in Lebanon, a proxy of Iran. We said it loud and clear. Hezbollah should have positions at least 20 miles away from the border, and if you don't do that by diplomacy, we'll do it for you. So right now, it's kind of a game that we play. There are some casualties, but it's not a full-scale confrontation, but it will be. And since Hamas is part of the Lebanese government as well, it will be a war between two countries, Israel and Lebanon. The Lebanese hate it, by the way. But the Lebanese are not strong enough. Hezbollah is a proxy of Iran, a state within a state, and they have the upper hand. When it comes to the Lebanese affairs, it's not a government, but it's basically Hezbollah and Iran. We have militias in Syria, and they're also proxies of Iran, and they have weapons that can fire at Israel. We do have in the West Bank some issues because Hamas is very strong in the West Bank as well. And all that happens simultaneously, but in different levels of intensity. We are determined that by the time this conflict is over, that will be the line of Hezbollah. This is the northern part of Israel, Galilee, Sea of Galilee, Golan Heights. Some of you have been there. That should be the new line of Hezbollah, 20 miles away from our borders. Otherwise, we will not be satisfied. 
So this is going to be the next conflict, and it has to end in one way only, in a complete Israeli victory. The neighborhood is watching, and by the way, the whole world is watching. We have much support from European countries, governments, no Arab country supporting Hamas, but officially you need to show solidarity. You talk to them behind the curtain, so to speak. Hamas is illegal in Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood was outlawed. Same in Jordan. The only place Hamas operates is in the Gaza Strip. Everybody wants to see the destruction of Hamas, but they won't see it loud and clear because the mob in their own country will present a problem. So we are working behind the scenes, so to speak, and that will be our goal. It has to end up in such a way. The West Bank, we did mention that. I do want to show you the outer circle. The Houthis from Yemen, you tell me what they have got to do with Israel. Well, proxy of Iran, the Straits of Bab al-Mandeh are under their control. About 17% of the world trade goes through the Suez Canal, not anymore today. You have to go through the whole continent of Africa, adding 4,000 miles to the journey. Um, it's going to affect the world economy, at least for a while. And then we have, of course, Iran, the mastermind behind everything. And the real villain will be Qatar, because all the money... All the money comes from Qatar. Qatar invested in American universities, $4.7 billion over the last 15 years. And if you give the money, you also dictate who is the professor and what's the curriculum. So don't be surprised that there was a hearing in the Congress and the presidents of MIT and Howard and Penn State when they were asked, about the code and protocol of universities, they said that killing the Jewish people depends on the context. That's what I said, three times. So under some circumstances, it's legitimate. In America, you have a problem. We know how to deal with our problems over there. Look at the Europeans. Millions are marching the streets of London. Europe is freaking out. They did not know how big is the problem in Europe. It was a wake-up call. And maybe it's good that it happened. Because not too late uh, to change the things, but that was definitely a wake-up word. So that's what we are confronting, basically, and fear not, because we are capable to protect ourselves, and we develop the best weapons in the world to do that. And some of you heard about the Iron Dome, and some of you heard about David Sling, or the arrow. The arrow was used for the first time, effectively, to intercept a ballistic missile uh, from Yemen. So the whole world is interested. By the way, because of the Russian-Ukrainian war, Western Europe is freaking out from Russia. They do not have any weapons to defend themselves. Guess what they are going to do? They bought the air already. Made in Israel, the money is American. Thank you, guys. Technology is local. This system is going to protect Germany and France and Britain and all of Western Europe from potential Russian barrage of rockets. Here is an irony of history. Jewish weapons are going to protect Germany. Interesting, huh? So they made a deal, and we are working to demand, to supply the demand, but that will be the new way to protect Western Europe by using the arrow. Back now to the opening slide. Well, quite amazing when you see that. I can't exactly answer the question. I can tell you this. A month ago, they took a poll in the West Bank. 82% of the people in the West Bank, Palestinians, are supporting Hamas, including the massacre of October 7th. So are all Palestinians pro-Hamas? I have no idea how to answer that. But when you carry the naked, the dead body of an Israeli girl to the streets of Gaza, and everybody, everybody comes to spit on it and comes to beat it up, are the good people in Gaza? 
when you're replacing the hostages, and the Israeli hostages are taken by the Red Cross, they only provide the shuttle services uh, to the other vehicle to go out of Gaza, and the mob is standing there, spitting and yelling and cursing. Are there good people in Gaza? I don't know. Maybe there are. If there are, I have no idea how to find them. Because you need to understand, we try to do things by the protocol. And the U.S. is pressing us quite hard to do things by the protocol. It's an election year in America, if I know correctly. And the president is under lots of pressure in his own party. And we understand that it's politics. But the demands that we have in order to keep getting support are demands that no army can match. Impossible to operate under such restrictions. But we do our best. So in army headquarters, one of the gentlemen behind the table is a lawyer, specialist in international law. His only job is to give the justification if a target is legitimate, yes or no. And if he says we cannot take this target out, we don't take the target out. We don't want to be sued in the International Court of Criminal whatever because of that. No army ever acted like that. Once you're inside and somebody fires from a house, the house will be taken down, yes? You do understand the nature of this conflict. Well, folks, I have to apologize, number one, for the aggressive tone that I was using, but you don't understand how personal this thing is to us, especially the hostages issue. And I hope that you are, I can't say it really enjoyed, but you understood at least part of the message. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to stand here tonight before you and to deliver that message with you. And once again, do not trust anything that I shared with you. Go and check. Go and check. There is enough deception out there enough propaganda, although I don't want to add to that. But basically, it's a simple story. Two people fight for the land. One is willing to make compromises, and the other one says, no, we're going to kill you. That's the bottom line. The rest, mountains of deception. And by the way, the fact that Israel is willing to negotiate doesn't mean that we're giving up on the biblical promise. The Bible says very clearly, what is the land God gave to the Jewish people? The idea is that for now, to stop the killing, and for now, to stop the misery, we are willing to make those concessions because only God knows the timing when these prophecies will be fulfilled. But when God is with you, who can be against you? Thank you. I think you'll agree that insight, education, and passion for his homeland is what we heard from Ronnie Simon and brutally honest in his assessment of where the nation of Israel stands today, internally and in the eyes of the watching world. Now, if you subscribe to the audio-only podcast of this program and want to see the video that includes all of Ronnie's slides that were a part of his presentation, then please go to thewaymedia.net and go to the podcast episodes section of Signs of the Times, or download the Way Media app where you can see it there as well. Well, we are way over time this week, and we hope you can join us next week when Pastor Mark returns to show us how the things happening in our world today are pointing to God's prophetic word as Signs of the Times. Follow.